This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My guest today on One for the Road openly discusses her own battles with OCD, bulimia, alcohol addiction and drug dependency. She is the author of several books including The Wrong Knickers, Mad Girl and Glorious Rock Bottom. It gives me great joy to introduce you today, the fantastic Bryony Gordon. Bryony Gordon, the most exotic, wonderful, beautiful woman that has appeared on my screen today. How the devil are you? <laughs> Am I the only woman that's appeared on your screen today? Yeah, yeah but we, we won't worry about that one. How the devil are you? I'm all the better for speaking to you. I'm a bit, I don't know, this is obviously, it's a podcast, so people hear it, but do you, you put the video up as well, because if you do, I'm looking very red and sweaty because I just got back from a run and I kind of look, I used to say, I used to make the joke, I look like I've been in the glare of a nuclear bomb, but I can't really make that joke anymore. Well, you look like you've just done lots of stretching uh, and it looks like in the background you need to do, is that a dressing gown there? (laughs) It's a dressing gown, yeah. It's all right. This only goes out of my app anyway, so it's not going out globally, so you're okay. So... (laughs) I'm really grateful that you've come onto this podcast. We've been friends for a while now. And um, I remember when I met you, you were doing a, a talk in a church at Christmas. And it was in the evening and I still had a hangover from the night before. And I saw you and I knew that you were sober. Um, and that was probably two weeks before I stopped drinking. So subliminally there, you might have had an impact on my sobriety. <laughs> Well, we all have an impact on each other's sobriety, okay. is what I've learned. Like, I always think there's no accident that we kind of draw people into our lives who, you know, I think it's that attracting. Because I remember before I got sober, I suddenly started like becoming friends with people that happened to be sober. And I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. I was like, so you used to drink a lot. <laughs> 
And now, and now you don't drink at all and you're still alive and standing. And they're like, yes, Bryony. And I like collected the sober people like they were like Pokemon or something because I was I couldn't. And I always know now if someone is really intrigued by the fact that you're sober, it's usually a sign that it's not always. That's a terrible over like generalization. But you know, I personally was fascinated by sobriety because I knew deep down I needed to do it. I think there's a curiosity in most people, to be honest, because um, I remember we were chatting on our local stretch and mm. a guy came up to us actually. Uh, and he used to be a sponsor and he, and he fell and he, he was inquiring about a little tattoo I had on my hand. And I think I was a few, few weeks sober then. And you've done that really quite like very classically. I know you don't, I know not everyone who like is part of your community and like likes the word alcoholic, but there's a certain like quality of slightly addicty of getting a tattoo with the 12 step fellowship on your wrist. Yeah. um, I had that done within about three days of giving up drinking. And I remember I was in a tattoo shop and I said, Oh, I need a symbol to show my sobriety. And that's me all over, like literally uh, all or nothing person. I remember that, that man, he came up to you and he said, and he was clutching like a can of something alcoholic. And, um, and I see him all the time around because we live close to each other. I remember him coming up to you and saying, I used to be in that. I used to do that. And uh, I lost it all. And and, and don't, and he said something like, don't do what I've done and walked off. And it really, it really um, hit me. And I, and I see him now around and about and I always think about him and I'm always like, I want him to, you know, like I, I haven't seen him for a few days and he's naturally someone that the people in the local community kind of shy away from, but yeah. I'm like, he's up, he's me, he's you. Yeah. He's any one of us who stay in, you know, who, who can't beat the drinking. There is no difference between me and that man other than that I have for some reason been lucky enough to get sober and stay sober today. Like, I don't know what tomorrow holds, Mm. but like, I feel this sort of um, kinship with him. Anyway, that really always has always stayed with me. Yeah. I quite often talk to him actually. He's always around that stretch and uh, I I met his mum as well. Did you? Yeah, I met his mum and had a chat with his mum and she she looked absolutely um, like she'd had enough of the whole thing, you know, because it affects everyone around us, doesn't it? You know, it's just not us, it's everyone. Uh, And she was very distant, actually. I don't, she didn't trust me. I don't think she trusted the process. I think she's worn herself out over the years trying to help him. And as we know, unless you help yourself, it's difficult to help others and, I just think he's found a place in his life that he he just doesn't know quite what to do or where to go. Um, but I, yeah, I, I often stand with him for five ten minutes and chat, and he's he's never ever saying, "Oh, can you lend me five quid or or whatever." He just is the company that he seeks. I think the conversation. I think we all do. Anyway, this is not about that young chap. It's about you. So let's wind it back because I think uh, it's fascinating to know about your journey and um where it all began for you Bryony. well i was born on july the 5th 1980 oh, you're just a spring chick <laughs> should we start from uh, then then <laughs> well i mean it was a 
<laughs> we have like we don't want to use like, all the internet bandwidth. No, no, go on. So then, after the first few years, let's move it on a bit. Yeah. What do you want to know? Well, I want to know what it was like for you growing up. Was there any uh, drinking in your family or? Um, no, not. I mean, there was normal drinking in my family. I I didn't. You know, I was. I think I was a very kind of scared child I had from a very young age what I now know is obsessive compulsive disorder and um it went untreated as so many things did uh you know um in the 80s and 90s so I was you know sometimes scared to leave the house and yeah so that was that was really the kind of beginning of what I and I had you know a a very kind of middle class upbringing you know there was nothing on the surface that would have, you know, I, I, I just think I was, I often think about this and I, I think I just, there are types of people who just, you know, there, some of us are alcoholics and addicts and some of us aren't. And I don't, I, I think, you know, nothing, you know, I just happened to find alcohol and it, it became like a, it was like putting on a sparkly dress, you know, um, except from the very first moment I picked up a drink and I was like, I think I was probably about 14 when I first had a drink. And I remember like being in the park with a friend and drinking like one of those like litre bottles of cider and then like a little bottle of vodka, you know, and I was like straight and I was like violently ill, you know, and yet I still, it was like all I wanted to do was go out and do it again. Like the the violently ill bit I could just sort of ignore. And I think I always knew from, uh, I always knew deep 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 down that I couldn't drink like other people um but I you know that it took a very very long time for me to kind of unpick that and I spent a lot of time trying to prove I wasn't an alcoholic you know and I would like I would do those like they're not quizzes they're not like for fun but I always call them quizzes those questionnaires like are you an alcoholic and they'd say things like do you, you know, do you drink um, to, you know, uh, 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 and do things that you wouldn't do sober? And I'm like, that's the point of drinking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'd add, I'd, 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 I'd take them all off and I'd be like, oh, this is ridiculous. Everyone's an alcoholic according to this. I was in so much denial, but I also, you know, I managed to kind of, I think I had a very, a view of alcoholic alcoholism, which really served me in my denial, which was that it was, that man on the street you know it was someone on a park bench uh with a paper bag and I was like I can't I'm not that person and I you know as time went on I like made a sort of you know I would turn I was like the party girl you know I was like the fun party girl and you know Bryony would always go that bit further than anyone else and I would kind of turn it into a funny story you know in a way that's been my entire career you know because I I became a journalist. Journalism obviously is very friendly. Uh, you know, alcohol is, is journalism isn't friendly, but journalism is very alcohol friendly. You know, there was a huge culture of drinking that was totally normal. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved at the end of the day, going to the pub with people from work and chewing the fat and just having a laugh, you know, journalists are just interesting, funny. And I, you know, and I and I really was able to play the part of girl do crazy things. And then I remember when my the Telegraph, who I still work for, and 
I've worked for now for 22 years. Um, I remember in my sort of mid-20s, them, and I was like a jobbing feature writer doing stuff, and I remember them saying, we would like you to write a column about your, like, party girl lifestyle. And I was like, brilliant, you know? And I'm not blaming it on the Telegraph or anything like that, but it was like I was very clever at, like, turning it, turning anything into a hilarious story that actually now I look back and go, oh, that wasn't funny. That was really sad. But that was, like, my whole you know, life. And I, it took me, and I always knew I had obsessive compulsive disorder, but I couldn't kind of like pin the two together. And then, you know, my story was very much like I discovered cocaine uh, and cocaine, I think is, is often missed out of the conversation about drinking in this country, because, you know, we can easily say, oh, it's a kind of media drug. It's a whatever. It's a yuppie Yuppies? Does anyone even use the word yuppies anymore? But like, it's it's everywhere, and you know, and it goes hand in hand with binge drinking, you know, because um, I and, and I could do, I could do, you know, it would sober me. It you know, it kind of sobers you up, basically, and allows you to carry on drinking. I blacked out, you know, and I didn't like blacking out. And it, in a way, I'm grateful to cocaine because it brought me into sobriety a lot quicker. I think because it things got really dark things escalated you know in a way that I wonder if I hadn't like it made my drinking so my drinking was dark but it like took it to levels where I couldn't I couldn't really weigh up what I was doing with you know it was seedy as it it often is with people that use cocaine um so yeah I I but my drinking, you know, I could tell myself and I didn't use cocaine all. I mean, I did in my 20s. I used it all the time. But when I sort of grew up, it was like an occasional thing. And so I could tell myself, oh, but of course, I thought very much that um, when I met my husband and I got pregnant very quickly and, uh, and you know, and I just assumed that um, – I just assumed that everything was going to be normal. You know, like I, it didn't even occur to me that after the pregnancy, I would do anything other than have an odd glass of red wine and be sophisticated, you know, like while I was like, just after I put my baby to bed, it just, it didn't even occur to me. And within like two weeks of my daughter being born, I was back on the booze, you know, and I justified it again. I was like, well, of course I need a drink. You know, being a new mom is stressful. I couldn't breastfeed. And I was grateful when they were like, give the baby some formula. Cause I was like, that means I don't, you know, I can just have a drink. Yeah. And uh, my life, like I spent, I had like all of these rules around my drinking. It was like, I didn't drink until my daughter had gone to bed. I didn't drink every day. I didn't drink during the day, you know, and I didn't drink spirits. <laughs> like towards the end, I was just drinking like session ale because I could just keep going on it. You know, and I didn't do cocaine often. Like it was like a party drug once a couple of times a year. And, you know, and I was like, oh, this is. And in the end, and I thought because I had all these rules that I was in control of my drinking, but actually the rules were assigned that my drinking was in control of me. And even if I wasn't drinking every day or during the day, I was thinking about drinking all day. Like it was like everything was like scheduled around when I would have a drink. So if I had a big work thing on a Tuesday, it would mean I couldn't have a drink on a Monday evening, although it didn't always mean I didn't have a drink. But then it mean that Sunday night was a definite drinking night. You know, it was all sort of like, yeah, I'm just talking about it now. It's like, I'm so 
yeah, it was, it just, it was just completely, my life was just revolved around it. Everything you were saying, I relate to every single bit about the scheduling. It, <laughs> it, it would be like, okay, it, what makes me wonder what I was doing is if I had a day off, that would mean a really heavy session the night before because I've got a day off. Yeah, mm. it would ruin my day off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. It, it's crazy. And even though, like, if I had something really important on, um, I remember me and Em were on Lorraine uh, in the morning and I was still having that conversation, how much can I drink tonight and get away with it? And then <laughs> if I do start drinking, will I then go, fuck it, I don't care anymore? Because I did that with something else and I turned up at this talk uh, and I was hanging. I got in the Addison Lee and the guy undid his window straight away. And I thought, oh my God, I must reek of wine. Like it was half six in the morning. Uh, and I, I just downed a bottle of wine five minutes before I went to bed. Yeah, I was drunk already. And it's like, what? why? Why did I need to do that extra bottle of wine? That thing of like self-sabotage really resonates as well, because I, you know, I would often knowing that I had something the next day, like fuck it up by, I once went on television drunk and high basically to do a paper review. It was awful. You know, I feel so, you know, I don't, I don't take any pleasure in retelling these stories. It was, it was just it was so unprofessional and I'm so incredibly amazed that I didn't get sacked. I didn't uh, get hurt. I didn't die. You know, I like it's, it's, it's really quite miraculous that I am sitting here talking to you now. Mm. And I don't take that for granted at any stage. You know, I may not have had a drink for like nearly five years now, but I am still an alcoholic and every day I wake up and I am like my brain and alcohol, you know, and I've really come to realize that alcoholism doesn't just encapsulate the way I drank it. You know, it's my OCD is mixed in it. You know, it's, it's basically, I mean, I can sort of lump every, you know, everything underneath it, the way I eat food sometimes or, you know, and it's, it's, it's sort of, it wants, you know, it's that, uh, it wants to kind of isolate me and cut me off, you know. Yeah. And um, so I, uh, you know, I, if I stop and think about it too much, it's quite, I find it really sad, actually. I find it really sad. And, and like lots of the work I've done in the past, like my first book was like this hilarious, you know, um, you know, romp through my crazy 20s. And I look back and I just think, oh. I mean, some of it was fun, like that, you know, you wouldn't do it if it wasn't and it worked, you know, at some point. But yeah, I just feel this intense sadness for that version of me that thought that was how I had to live my life. Yeah, but we've, we wouldn't be who we are today. And, I, you know, we are in the present now. And I look back at some of the things I did and how I've reacted. And I literally drank away my 40s. Right. Um, and I don't remember a lot about my 40s, which makes me really, really sad. But I use that as an experience that I can learn from now uh, and pick bits out of that. Um, I mean, it's interesting what you say about alcohol being there all the time because I've learned to live alongside it. It's like having an ex in the next street 
And you know, every now and again, you're going to bump into that X, but it's how you manage that. And some days you have good days, some days you have bad days. And I, I kind of use that analogy because it's never going to go away. People say I've divorced it out of my life and it's gone forever. It isn't because you, as you know, Brian, and you get blindsided out of the blue, it taps you on the shoulder and go, remember me? And you might just be really particularly vulnerable that day, or you might be in a really good mood, or you might have had a real touch at work and written a, an amazing piece. And, and it's that all that reward thing or the coping thing that that you're like, oh, God, yeah, I could murder a drink now. Well, I had it just the other day. Like, you know, we're in spring now and the sun's come out. And I on Saturday, I was going out for dinner with my husband and um, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to just sit in the garden and get pissed? And I went, I had to say to myself, no, it wouldn't be nice. It would be bloody awful. Like, you know, like, come on, let's play the tape forward, as I, people often say to me, you know, um, it, it would be it would be dreadful. I mean, I, I I had a bit of a kind of like reminder of it when I had COVID earlier this year and you saw me afterwards, Dave. And I and I had some like night nurse yeah. and it set my brain off because yeah. it has a bit of alcohol in it, you know, and I have to be really careful, you know, it was like. I just hate it. It was a horrible feeling. It really, it was like, it was just, ugh. And I, but I mean, it wasn't a horrible feeling. It was a nice feeling. But that was why it was, because I was like, this frightened, it frightened me. And it reminded me how close I am at any given moment to a drink. You know, even if I'm like, I am, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to drink. I don't think about drinking really, but it's, oh, no, I don't, it, it, I, I'm not under any illusion that I am like cured or whatever. And, and I think in life generally, when it comes to all sorts of things, we kind of look for a cure. And actually that isn't that helpful. I heard, I have a friend who's a therapist and she was talking about how she often hears people come, people come to her and they often say, I never want to feel this bad ever again. And she's like, that's the mistake. It's not like you can't stop yourself from feeling this bad you know bad we feel bad you know it's it's okay to feel bad it doesn't feel nice but it is okay and actually the key is to sort of hold yourself while you're feeling bad in a way that is healthy and boundaried and helpful and isn't gonna kind of send you off and I I accept that I am an alcoholic and that I have obsessive compulsive disorder and I am prone to depressions and 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 that is okay. I don't like it when they come. I don't like it when OCD comes a knocking on my brain and says, you're a terrible person and da, 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 and I go into myself. But I've learned that when it comes, it's okay. And I need to breathe through it. And I need to accept that it's probably a sign that I'm getting slightly away yeah. from what is my, without sounding like fucking corny, my truth you know yeah I'm moving away from connection I'm moving away you know and that was what happened after I had COVID I was like oh 10 days at home but really that was the culmination of two years at home I'd used the pandemic as an excuse to isolate and I just felt awful and and that was why the night nurse scared me a bit and and shook me up and so anyway it sounds it was like a reminder of like to stay close uh, mm. to, to people who know who know what it's like as well you know I get that because um, there were a couple of times in the beginning of my journey, right? And uh, it was probably six months, nine months or something. And I, I remember specifically <laughs> saying, 
I don't, I think I'm all right now. I, I don't even fancy a drink, right? That night, I was gagging for a drink. And there, there's the complacency right there. And I really learned from that to think, I really have to be aware. It's like a horrible dark halo that surrounds me all the time, ready to, to pick on my vulnerabilities. Uh, and I've got to be mindful and connection is so important. And it's an interesting subject that I'm really exploring now about the different connections that we choose. So you go down the AA route, right? And we've, we've talked about this before because I did that in the beginning. And uh, initially, I loved it because I love churches and old buildings and that. But after a while, I didn't feel comfortable. And actually, it made me feel like I wanted to go to the pub after about the fifth or sixth one, right? But then, since then, I've said to you as well a couple of times that I think maybe it was just the wrong meeting. So I think people that explore the journey in the beginning, if they find that it's not quite working for them there are so many other communities you can join but I also think you have to try different meetings to find your tribe as well I mean I'm not going to talk too much about AA because it's you know the anonymity piece and I'll you know but it's but I do think that everyone has their own route and everyone has their own thing and and what I do think about alcoholism whether you choose to define yourself by that title or not and I do is that it wants to isolate you and it wants to cut you off from people. So it will look, you know, we will look for the kind of, no, this is not for me. I'm not like that person or da 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 And anyway, and that's, you know, and, 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 and I, so I think for me, the best thing for me in treating my alcoholism is to stay open-minded and the less cynical I am, the more wonderful life becomes, you know? So I love, I love, I would not be so, you know, I will say categorically, I would not be sober without 12 step fellowships. Like that is, that is for me and I love it, but there are many people that choose a different route and I will never kind of like, that's, that's, and we all, you know, all that matters (laughs) really is that all that matters to me is that people are exploring sobriety and it doesn't really matter how they get there or what works for them. And this is why I I, I feel like a lot, a lot of love to see the sober communities that um, that have grown on social media because it's all the same thing really, and yeah. that is everyone wanting to come together and connect about something that has made them feel isolated. Yeah, and to me, it's like I don't, you know, I, I'm happy to like take a bit from everything, and I, and I've come to that place, you know, and I and I and I think everyone's it doesn't it doesn't really matter what you do just as long as you're staying sober and content and you've got people close to you. And um, so I'm, you know, I love being sober. I highly recommend it. And if people, you know, and if people come to me and say, what should I do to get sober? I will tell them how I got it, but I'm not, I'm not like, I I can't like sit and evangelize about things because I don't think it really helps in the end. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. The more someone tells me to do something, I don't know about you, Dave, the more someone tells me to do something, the less I want to do it. Do you know what oh, I mean? yeah. Yeah. And I like to sort of see it in action. And I think that there's, you know, it's just, I just love, I just love how much people talk about sobriety now. And, you know, there is still a stigma attached to alcoholism and addiction. And I noticed the other day you, you did a really good post about, you know, what do you think of the term alcoholic? And lots of people find it, 
you know, they don't want to be defined by it or that it's kind of stigmatizing. But I'm like, I don't have a problem with the term alcoholic. I have a problem with society's view of Mm. alcoholism. Do you know what I mean? And I think the more that we can embrace it and go, well, I'm an alcoholic. Look. Yeah. You know, the more helpful and the less stigma there is attached. And so the more people there are choosing to identify as sober in whatever space or whatever, I just think it's fantastic, don't you? It's I think massive. it's wonderful. It and like really I and I uh I love, 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 love. Like it just is so like it you I don't know about you. But when I got sober, that was like the most interesting thing about me. And I was like, everyone, guess what? I haven't had a drink for like three months or six months or whatever. You know, it was like that. I couldn't believe it. And I still can't believe that I haven't had a drink for like, I don't know, however long. But like, because of my sobriety, it is no longer the most interesting thing about me. Do you know what I mean? And so I don't, does that make sense? And like, I just... I love how it has become so normalized, you know, I love, I love how it's the most important thing to me because without it, I don't have anything else really. Do you know what I mean? No, I, never, yeah. I, I really get that. And it, it's like what both of us, I think that if we'd have met when we were drinking, we would be bad news together. <laughs> I've got so many sober friends. So I'm like, a part of me is like, Oh, I wish we'd like had a night out. And, yeah. then, and then, like my best friend in, who I made in rehab who I've written about she's very happy for me to write about like I wouldn't uh hot my friend Holly we have like the same sobriety date exactly we met in rehab we lived it turned out we lived like a mile away from each other kids the same age like I couldn't believe it I was like there was I thinking I was the worst person in the world and I'm like all along there was someone else just up the road doing exactly the same things and I was like oh my god Holly can you imagine if we'd had a night out? She's like, we wouldn't, no, we wouldn't be friends. <laughs> I know. We, I mean, we were standing outside a, uh, a well-known bar where we live and it was about three o'clock. And I said to you, if we went in there now, we wouldn't come out until, well, we wouldn't get in until God knows what. Because I know our drinking is p- pretty much the same. Binging. I think we're both greedy. I- I've often said about <laughs> drink- drinking. <laughs> And I'm a glutton when it comes to drinking. I'm glutton. Do you know what? I'm glutton, though, when it comes to lots of things. I'm a glutton when it comes to uh, television, to food, to wanking. (laughs) I just want more. I'm like, I just want more, more, more. Yeah. Well, I can relate to the food. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But listen, darling, with your OCD, right? So... You have bad OCD, don't you? So there's a lot of people that say, oh, God, I hate it when a table mat's crooked or a picture on the wall. I've got OCD or the knife and fork can't straighten, whatever. But since giving up drinking, has that improved? Yes, it has massively. So OCD, people often say, oh, I've got OCD. You should see my sock drawer. And I'm like, why is it always in a fucking sock drawer? I'm like, do you want to see my... I don't have a sock drawer. Look at my floor drobe. Like, do you know what I mean? Oh. My husband always jokes that um, I've got the wrong type of OCD. He's like, I wish you had the good type of OCD. I'm like, there is no good type of OCD. It is a disorder. So lots of people, yeah, they don't like the 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 fork or knife being out of place or whatever. And that's fine. It's OCD if it um if it is impacting on your life to the point that you can't do anything else, really. So 
I always describe obsessive compulsive disorder as it's basically your brain refusing to acknowledge what your eye can see so that the oven is off or the candle is out or the door is locked or the hair straightener is unplugged or whatever and um or that your hands are clean and this is there is many types of OCD the type that really floored me was is is pure o which is to do with thoughts intrusive thoughts and we all have intrusive thoughts we all have thousands of thoughts a day right we are not our thoughts we've all had that thought of like what if someone hands me their baby and I just like throw it on the floor um I hope everyone has so not just me but you know most of us will go that's a stupid don't that's I'm not going to do that and they move on pretty quickly but someone with OC Puro is so kind of upset and distressed by the thoughts that they will ruminate on the thought to check they are not the thought again and again and again and so I had a type of OCD for a long time from childhood where it basically made me think I was a serial killing paedophile People don't talk about that OCD. Like, they don't drop that into conversation, obviously. The table, man. Um, no. Yeah. And my head was like, maybe you did something terrible and blanked it out in horror. So before I'd even picked up a drink, I was convinced that on my walk home from school, I might have, like, murdered someone and, like, checked the newspapers to see if anyone had been murdered in the local area. I mean, like, I can tell. Uh, and then, obviously, when I drank, it like, my... I drank to kind of like shut up the OCD, but of course it then just got much louder the next day. But the next day it was like, I didn't care. Like the next day was the next day. And I was in so much pain now that I needed something to deal with it. And I also knew that whatever I was ruminating on, I would probably, it would be replaced with something else by the next day because of my drinking. And it was like such a sick and twisted way of like, anyway. um, But obviously when I had my daughter, the OCD started saying, what if you've hurt her? And I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So drinking was part of, you know, it was, it, it was, it was terrible. And and since I've got sober, it's got so much better because I'm not creating those situations, you know, whereby my brain goes, but what if, but so much better, but it hasn't gone. Like it comes back from time to time and it kind of shocks me when it's like, I'm like, what? what are you doing here again? But the, the times it comes back are usually when I'm not kind of looking after myself. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. that's 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 usually it. Like I'm I'm sort of cutting myself off from the world, and yeah. I suppose it's a bit like living with alcoholism, isn't it? Because you've always got to be mindful that it's there. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting because with my drinking, it always turned the volume down because mm. I'm a massive overthinker. But obviously, it's a short term fix. So when that wears off, the alcohol, the thinking is ramped up twice as loud. And it sounds to me like your OCD was like that. And what you say about um, dropping a baby on the floor, uh, I don't know whether it was just my imp of the mind, but when I was on Six Minute Makeover, I'd be watching Peter Andre stand there and thought, any minute now, I'm, when he's on camera, I'm going to pick up a pot of paint and pour it over his head. <laughs> it was something, you know, or, or I'm going to... Well, that's that, that kind of thing. It's I'm going to say something outrageous. Yeah, on camera. Like yeah. really discriminative towards him or something. But yeah, 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 yeah. I used to be scared that I'd sent like an email to my boss saying something terrible and then deleted it like after I sent it. So I would, and I'd be like, does the boss look cr- I mean, mad? Like totally. It's really serious though, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. mental health and, and the drinking around that because it does escalate it, doesn't it? But look, most of us, I mean, I think it's changing, but most of us, alcohol was the only kind of coping mechanism any of us were shown for a bad day. So I, 
but it is it is absolutely not the answer no so <laughs> to a bad day um that's not to say I'm also like quite I quite like if you can if you can have one drink and you know enjoy it and then move on with your life then don't like people are like oh I'm gonna do dry January briny because you know I've started having three glasses of wine a week <laughs> And I'm like, oh, come on. you can get like, don't beat yourself up. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't, alcohol is like, I'm not anti-alcohol. I'm anti us not realizing that for some people it's really fucking dangerous. Yeah. And I also think as well, it's what it does to you because we can't compare to us because we're just animals, right? You and me. But like, I talk to people sometimes and they just have, a couple of glasses of wine with dinner. And yeah. I say just, right, to us, that's, God, that is absolute moderation. Well, that that's, makes that actually makes me feel sick. Yeah, but that's double your weekly units alone, just a couple of glasses. Is and it? also, yeah, when I, when I say to people, how does that make you feel? And they say, um, it affects my sleep, my mental health. My, then it doesn't matter if it's two bottles. If two glasses are making you feel negative and depressed, then that's time that you need to address it. So it's not always about quality, um, quantity. quantity. Yeah. No, no, no. It's I, I totally agree. And yes, you're right. And I'm wrong. And the, uh, the, the, the thing is, is that um, if alcohol, if they created alcohol now, it would not be allowed. I know. <laughs> like, no, absolutely not. What is this? But going back to that thing of people that can have just a couple of drinks with dinner or whatever, like, I find a lot of my friends are very thoughtful and they're like, oh, do you mind if I have a drink? Mm. And I'm like, no. And I find it really helpful, actually, to see people drinking, quote unquote, normally. Because <laughs> the thought of having one or two, I'm like, I'd rather have none. Mm. I'd rather have none. Like, I don't, I just, I, it like, literally still makes me, it appalls me. And um, and that's why I know. And and when I see people just drinking normally, I'm like, yeah, this is fine. No, I don't want any more. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's why I can't drink. That's why I've lost my drinking privileges. Mm. <laughs> you know, and and it's and it's really helpful. I, I, I cannot be around people drinking as I drank. Like, I can't. It's, I hate it. And that's okay. So I don't tend to, you know, go to pubs or hang out with people that, drink like that anymore but um yeah i it is everywhere it's everywhere and uh i remember um walking down um near you and there's a pub that had a blackboard out in the summer and it said um monday morning blues cure it with booze (laughs) monday morning this was and this is right at the beginning so i was like a militant and i went in there who's a manager now i would just not be able to walk to uh, gales and meet you but um so you wrote Glorious Rock Bottom. Yeah. Um, did writing that help your journey as well? Because I'm writing something at the minute, right? And, well, my book. And it's dragging up so much stuff that I thought was buried in the past. And now I'm exploring it. It's actually really, it's a bloody journey, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And weirdly, of all the books I've written, Glorious Rock Bottom was probably the easiest. And I think that was because I'd been to, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to rehab and I had amazing support and an amazing counsellor who I still see to this day, who is mentioned lots in Glorious Rock Bottom, although I changed his name. Um, And um, so I had sort of 
processed a lot of it and I, I actually found it just kind of fell out it fell out of me in like mm. six weeks it was quite but I I don't like I interestingly like that I think is that was like I can't write anymore about myself mm. I can't do it because I don't have anything more to give and um I it is like writing books <laughs> that's why I was texting with a friend of mine who's a novelist and she was like uh why didn't we take up a a, a more relaxing job like firewalking <laughs> yeah yeah it's... and um but you know she was obviously but it was um you know it is it is it, the thing is it's a solitary activity and mm. it isn't always that great but, but I but uh, you know to be honest I do it because of the connect like every book I've written is like, even the first book was like, I want that women to read this and know they're not a fuck up because they're like careering around, you know, with, with not a clue of how to navigate life. Like that isn't, you know, all of it is like, I don't hate the idea of someone out there going through what I went through when they don't have to. And I want them to know they're not a freak and they're not alone. So for me, the real, the, I, I write the books that process in itself is not necessarily that helpful. In fact, I usually go mad while I'm writing a book. But what is helpful is when it goes out into the world and someone reads it and they get in touch with you and they tell you their story. And that is like, that's the gold. Yeah, That's the fucking gold. It's like, oh my God, you're out there. You're there too. We are. Yeah. Um, it's enabled me to know that I'm not alone and to meet people like me. Um, and there are a lot of people like me out there, you know, and um, that's what I love is the connection. It's like taking the negatives and turning them into positives. And to be fair, and Glorious Rock Bottom came out during 2020, like pandemic. And, uh, and you know, it, it's been really, it's been kind of sad not to be able to do, like I was about to, I was about when the first lockdown happened, I was about to go on like a book tour and obviously, you know, happily we give all this stuff up to help. But I I kind of, it's sad. I like, I really miss that, like going out, meeting people and connecting with them. Do you know what I mean? Like face to face and having hugs and, you know, letting it all out. And uh, that 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 part has, has kind of like, the gold part hasn't really existed. So I know, I don't... but we came to see you at Alexandra Palace, didn't we? And we were sitting in the green room. <laughs> and I was eating all the crisps. And uh, you you were really nervous. But when you came out onto the stage, you just... I said to you, you could be a stand-up comedian because you literally went in, like, lights, camera, action. And you it was fantastic. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this that went that evening. It was packed as well. And it was such a lovely night because... You were really funny, but you showed real vulnerability and, and honesty as well. And I think that's why people hook into you, because it is all about your truth. And for me, I speak mine. And an interesting thing that we've spoken about is that we do care what people think. And I think most people do. So when you said, you know, I want, I like it when people like me, but it's how we deal with the criticism of people that don't. And there are there are people in the world. But I know now I'm sober, I feel less bothered about that. 
than when I was drinking because when I was drinking, I was the showman. I was that make them laugh, make them laugh and whatever. And now I stripped it all back to me and I've learned a lot about me now. And I actually like me. Uh, and I could never say that before because I didn't like me. So whatever criticism comes my way now, I handle it a lot more than I would have done back then. You know, it's interesting because I find it's easier like I, it's not just criticism I have to handle. It's also people saying to me, you're great, whatever. I'm like, or none of it. So like after that Alexander Palace thing, I remember being like, oh, I've got to be really careful here not to go into like, oh, did that person like, did they like it? Was it great? And I was like, so not not to look for the criticism, but also not for the praise. And just remember, it doesn't matter. I, I had to go out on stage and be like, it doesn't matter really what, how people reacted to it, what's mattered. All that really matters is that I've gone out on that stage and done the job I've been paid to do to the best of my ability that day. That was all that mattered. And so, and I try and be like that more, but it's hard. And I know, of course I care what people think about me. And I think when you, you know, it's that thing of what I've realized is I care what people think about me and that's okay. That's a human thing, but I can't, let what other people think about me influence the decisions I make on a daily on a daily basis like that the thing and I you know I spoke about loads of times before and it's not original to me and in fact it comes out of recovery communities but the saying of um what other people think of you is none of your business Mm, I love that and that's quite like whoa you know yeah 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 it's so powerful that so Let's touch as well on uh, you now, uh, you founded Mental Health Mates, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah, I created Mental Health Mates because I wanted to, I just was desperate to meet up with people like me, you know, and there was nothing, there was nothing really for, I remember like I was running on Clapham Common and there's all these groups of people together, um, but there was no kind of, there was no, there was nothing for people experiencing mental health issues. And I'm like, if that's one in four of us a year, and by all accounts, it's increased uh, during the pandemic, why is why is there nothing for us to come together? So yeah, so six years on, Mental Health Mates is in like, it's all over the country and people like basically walk leaders create walks in their local communities and people go along and it isn't, it is not a replacement for therapy. Mm. It's, but it's peer support and it's a place you can go and talk about what you've experienced well you don't have to talk about it but you know that whatever you talk about there will be no judgment basically yeah and, and it's interesting because managing your mental health isn't all about sobriety it's about a, a range of different things but for me when I stopped drinking I had to fill the void of uh just drinking my, my whole Sunday be around uh saying to him uh I might prepare the Sunday dinner she fancy a glass of wine and she say oh, I've just had breakfast what are you talking about <laughs> You know, uh, yeah. any excuse to get a beer down my neck, peeling the potatoes at midday. And my justification there was the pubs are open now and the football's on at one o'clock. So why wouldn't I, you know? Mm. So going out for walks in nature, I walked uh, around the Surrey Hills the other day and it was just stunning, you know, and you get those natural endorphins and that. And it, it just, it's just such a brilliant thing to do. I love just, I love running, I love swimming, I love anything. I love being outside, basically. I know, I saw you uh, was down the Tooting Lido the other day. Yeah, get bang into that. I know. Uh, It's it's warming up now, it's seven and a half degrees. (laughs) Because the thing now is, wild water swimming's really in now, isn't it? Like, 
So yeah. we'll have to go to the sea one day and just well, dive in. I think, yeah, I think it's all, um, I thought I'd try it. I think I thought I'd like try a winter of cold, of swimming in unheated bodies of water. And, uh, and I, and I've done it. I did it. I'm like, woohoo. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> if it's your well, thing. It, but I've done it. I love swimming, but I'm like, it's, you can't do much exercise when it's really cold. Like you get in and you get out. So it's not really, but it is amazing. And it is, it is, uh, it does sort of. Wake you up. <laughs> wait, it wakes you up, but it also gives you a bit of perspective. And also what I love about a Lido is that, especially tooting Lido, uh, is that you've got, it's just all these colours. It's all these bright colours, even in the dead of winter. And it's a whole community behind, you yeah, know, that, the, yeah. I love all of that. It feels like magic. Yeah. Uh, people are so lovely there. I know. Em's mum um, is quite well known down there because yeah, it- recently she, bless her, she's so amazing. She had a stroke, but before that she would walk down there and everyone, oh, hello, Trish, she's been going there for years. And as you say, there's another community right there of yeah. people getting together early doors, starting their day uh, in an amazing way rather than just getting out of bed and. <laughs> Yeah, it's really lovely. And and actually now, having done it through, and now the weather has picked up a little bit and it's bright and you're like, oh, and it's the whole kind of process. You're like, you've yeah. gone, you know, like, there was the day when it, it, they were like chipping ice off it and you got in and you're like, Wah. I keep trying to get Em to come, but she's like, no. No, I don't blame her. She, unless the bath is hot, she might my, my husband is like, you're fucking mental. I'm like, yes, and what else? Is yeah, yeah, hello, I've written about it all my life, so... <laughs> Um, before we go, because I like to keep these around an hour because that's why it's called one for the road. Because people yeah. uh run, drive to work, walk. What are we allowed to talk about your new book? Yeah. On, I mean, I, I haven't like announced it on the socials. I'm not I haven't uh, been allowed to, but I'm talking about it because I'm like, uh I'm really excited. It's my first novel. Yeah. My first fiction, my first work of fiction, and it's for young. It's for it's YA, which stands for Young Adults, Dave. Yeah, well, do you know what we talked about it in the car, didn't we? And and I I think it's fantastic because it it does well. I'll let you explain it because it. Okay. Well, I mean, let's wait till you. You haven't even read it, so you, it sounds fantastic. But I don't don't underestimate my ability to fuck everything up, right? That's all right. So uh, it is about it's about it's a retelling of Rapunzel set in the current times and yes. the character is a hair creator uh on a fictional social media platform and her whole life is about social media it's all she's trapped in the tower of her phone kind of thing and um she gets alopecia and her hair falls out and she has to reassess what matters to her which is which is based partly. I'm not a hair care creator, obviously. It's not based on my experiences and that thing. But when I was 18, all my hair fell out. I got alopecia because of well, the stress of you know OCD and all the stuff, and it's all connected. And I still to this day, like a patch will appear. I mean, you can't see really, but a patch. Well, you can't if someone's listening on the podcast. They definitely can't see. But I will get a patch like three months after I've gone through stress. Like my hair will just fall out in bits. I've got very used to it, and it's very common. It's like our body going, hang on. Yeah, yeah. It sounds just a brilliant book. And and that's how you describe it to me. And I'm sure people listening to this will go, I love that theory around it. Because social media today and the phones, I was on a, on a train yesterday and literally 
everyone was just staring into their screen. And then in the corner, there was a woman reading a book um, <laughs> called Glorious Rock Bottom. No, um, uh, no, but I, I wanted to congratulate her to say, well done. Because, you know, I have a thing that I put my phone in my pocket on the train because I, lo- I like to look out the window at what's going on out there. And, and the, I'm nosy, so I look at people's back gardens and the oh, yeah, I love that. And things like that. And I, I don't want to just stare into my screen. So I think it's a brilliant concept. Well, also, it is, it's not as kind of cut and dry as social media is bad. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it explores how social media can be a real force for good. Yeah, and it is. Used yeah. in the right way. Yeah. Because I didn't want to write a book where I was like, oh, social media is crap. You know, but it's more like, what are our priorities and yeah. why are we using yeah. it and what do we want to get from it? Yeah, I, I hope people like it. It's coming out in September. Pre-order? I don't know. There are no pre-order links yet. They're, they're like coming up. It's it's soon. Maybe by the time people are listening to this, then they might be out. So, Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's all very, I leave it, the publishers get on with it, and I just do what I'm told, which is write the fucking book. Yeah, that's <laughs> the main bit, I suppose. But, no, just touching before we go on social media, I, I find the community in the cyber community in, on social media amazing you know like it's so supportive and people gather together and share their experiences so you know I, I had to do a short video talking about that the other day and I had nothing but praise but if used in the right way mm. you know we all I think we all know there's a, a negative website beginning with T around that I won't even look at myself that is horrific and you're looking at me like you don't know what that is Oh, I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, but I, I, uh, I yeah, I don't really look at it. Well, I don't. No, no, no I don't want to look at it. You talking about tattle? Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was trying to be discreet. <laughs> no, everyone's going to be going on it, looking to see if they're on it. But listen, I yeah, I don't necessarily like. I you know like it's some of the stuff on there is really horrible. But like again, that's an example. People like even in even when people are being. <laughs> You know, even when people are being horrible, they they still need to connect. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like I, I try and like, yeah, don't like. It's you know, I'm sure that there's, I'm sure that there's. Such a, I I have looked at it. I have looked about what has been said about me. Have you? Yeah, but it's not. There's not masses, uh, and this is not an encouragement to put more on there. Uh, I think it just there was like, oh, uh, she has mental health issues because she's fat. Like, oh really yeah but that doesn't it doesn't particularly no well, that's me. just pathetic it's sad it's sad it's is sad. what it is sad and pathetic i feel no I, I feel i feel like real empathy for people that feel that that's the only way they can connect with other humans that's really sad yeah like that those people deserve our love not our hate exactly that so thank you so much my darling for coming on to my podcast and um Oh, thank you. I need a wee. Oh, fine. Let's end it with that one then. Um, thank you, darling, for giving me your your uh, hour of your life. Run, oh, run along you. to the toilet. And, Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah. And I'll see you soon down the ice street and we can have a chat with this bloke. Yeah, love it. All right, darling. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. 
and on there you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.